this morning, I'm going to be brief with my, my text. I'm not going to get too, too lengthy in the text, but if you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 20. We're going to be reading from verses 27 through 28. Again, 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 27 through 28. It says, in the spring, Benihadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them people of Israel camped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And the man of God, hear me now, came near and said to the king of Israel, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Turn to your neighbors. They, they, they shouldn't have said that. They, 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 they shouldn't have said that. They, they, they shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am Lord. Because the enemies declare that God is only with you when you're in the hills. God is only with you when the sun is shining. God is only with you when things are going well. God is only with you when your marriage is going great. God is only with you when the promotion comes because the enemy has declared that that God is absent when you're in the low of lows. God is absent when you're in the valleys because he has said that about you. I'm going to give you the victory. I'm going to give you the victory so that you may know that I'm God of your hills and I'm God of your valleys. He is God of your hills and he's God of your valleys. It's a well-known passage and that is the title of this message again. God of your hills and God of your valleys. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you to remain patient with me this morning. It's going to take a little bit of time to kind of unwind and unpack this. Um, But we're in the season of thanks, and I'm I'm thankful to be here this morning. I'm thankful for another day. I'm thankful that there's still a church on 21st and Highland that's still preaching and teaching the Word of God. That's just fully, it's concentrated. It's It's not holding anything back. It's still preaching that sin is sin, is that God is God and, and love is from God. Amen? I'm still thankful that on the, t- on the corner of 21st and Highland that there's still a church that's preaching one God, one Lord, one baptism. One, one of the journeys that I oftentimes like to reflect on and I'm, I'm really thankful for is, is the journey of the stage from adolescence to what I call adulthood and all the nuances that come with that. Because, you know, I'm thankful for where God is not only where he's brought you from, but where he's bringing you to. And so when you begin to begin to think back and think back on, on your stages from a teenager, from an adolescence to all the way to this point where you are now, God has done some things in your life. 
he's done some things in your life. I know everything hasn't been pleasant. I know you've, we've all come through some rocks and some, some valleys and some things. You say, I wish I could have redone that. But God has done some things in your life, and he will begin to continue to doing those things. He's continuing to, to do a work in you, and the work that he started, he's going to finish. But one of the things about adolescence, when you begin to think about it, is there's two things. We think, think back on in memory lane. Two things about adolescents and teenagers that, that they struggle with or they wrestle with in their early years. And, and Pastor Brownie, Chris, taught on this this morning. How many thought that that lesson was potent, powerful, powerful? You read my notes. I almost wanted to say I, I might as well go home. That's what I wanted to do. But one of the two things about adolescents that is difficult is in, in, your, in your formative years, you struggle with two things. One of the things you struggle with is finding out who your identity is. Who am I? What makes me me? You struggle with that. How has God wired you to be unique? That's one of the things that adolescents struggle with in, that, in finding that specific journey of how, why am I here? Why am I me? Why do I think the way I think? Why do I do what I do? Why do I approach problems the way that I approach problems? And one of the things that happens is the friction comes in because while you're trying to figure out your identity, there's also the longing to want to fit in. There's the longing to want to fit in. There's the longing to want to be a part of something, to be a part of a greater community. And it doesn't matter whether you're an adult or whether you're, you're a young person, nobody likes to be excluded. Now you talk about that and one of the things we understand is that growing up as a, as a, as a youth in church, but you add that other layer of, at the same time, growing up in a church culture in which you're trying to figure out your personal faith. You're trying to figure out why it is that you believe the way that you do. Why it is that, that, that in your formative years, why do we do what we do? We obviously don't, we don't operate in a church culture that is, is passive by any means. We operate in a church culture that is extremely demonstrative and one of the things about growing up in, in, in any, specifically this church, is the fact that you realize real quickly that you're different. You realize real quickly that things are different. Your parents do things differently. There are certain things your parents did let you do, and there are certain things your parents didn't let you do. There, there's, 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 there's ways you act, there's things you, you don't act. You're different in the way you dress, you're different in the way you talk, you're different in the way you worship. You are different. And, and growing up, one of the things I had to wrestle with is that I wrestle with all the times, Mama, why we go to church all the time? And shut up, boy, get in the car. Get in the car. Time to go. You know, you had that, that, that time period in which everybody would be sitting around and they'd be talking about a particular movie or something that they had watched. And you hadn't watched the movie because you couldn't watch the movie because you, your mama wouldn't let you watch the movie. If you knew if you did watch the movie, you'd be in trouble. And, and, but you went to school and you sat in school and, and everybody was sitting there and talking about the show or the movie. And what you had to do is you did what everybody else did. You sat there and smiled like you, like you knew you were talking about. You didn't say nothing. And you hope nobody called you out. Because if they called you out and asked you a question about it, you, you knew you didn't have anything to say. So you just sat there and you shut up and you, you, you kind of nodded your head. And, you know, I growing up, and many of you know my mama, you know, she, I had a type of mama that she would stand behind you and watch what you were watching. And she would read what you were reading. 
And, and what she would do is, is she would, she would get ready to in, interject herself and ask you questions about what, what are you actually taking into your, 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 your soul here? What, what are you feeding yourself on? And, and so if you sat there and you watched something, she would stand over you and what you watching? Star Wars, mama? Star what? I never heard of that. Mama, mama, I'm trying to watch this. And then you were hoping at that time period that, that the scene didn't change and that, you know, some, somebody didn't say something that was off color. You know what I mean? You just hope, hope it, it went on long enough that she would eventually say, okay, it's okay and walk away. But, but you just hoped and begged that, that, you know, nobody walked in and said, Lord Vader. Lord! Who's he calling Lord? There's only one Lord. There's one faith. Just turn that off. One baptism. You just hope that mama didn't say anything, that, that she didn't catch a scene that, that began to say, turn that off. But, but growing up in, in a church culture as, as we grew up in, you realize that you're different. It's different. It's different. And I want to transition back to the opening text because we're going to set some foundation here so we can come into this. But... The opening text, just like it is in the transition from adolescence to adulthood, you slowly begin to realize you're different. Is also what the children of God in the scripture realized slowly that they were different. They were different. And they had a lot of issues beginning to grapple with this. Okay, They had to understand that as they stepped into the promised land, as they stepped in, they were different from the other nations. Everybody else worshipped more than one God. They worshipped one God. As they stepped into the promised land, they had to realize that they had different dietary practices. They didn't eat bacon. They didn't eat certain meats. They didn't eat certain things. They had to realize they had a different form of government. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, the scripture gives us the scene that Samuel's transitioning off of the scene and he is about to die. The Bible says that they know that Samuel's about to die and they begin to ask for what? They ask for a king. Give us a king. We want a guy. We want a guy. They wanted somebody to be able to put their eyes upon and say, that's our guy. They wanted somebody that they could put the crown on his head. They wanted somebody to actually say that this is the man that's leading us. The Israelites, the children of God at that point in time, did not have a king. What they were led by is they were led by a group of elders in the wilderness and, but but they didn't want that at all. They, 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 that, that wasn't sufficing. They said that wasn't sufficing because they said that we want to be just like the other nations around them. And they were going through, and this is the same thing, they were going through what I would say would be an identity crisis. They wanted to be just like the other nations that were surrounding them. Okay. Sometimes I think that we think that identity crisis is just for here and the now. Sometimes I think that we think that this, this, this crisis that our culture is going through with changing the pronouns and the genders and, 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 and transform men transforming from men to women and women to men. Sometimes I think that we think that that's just for 2022 and beyond. But one of the things we have to understand is that not knowing our identity has been something that mankind has been struggling with from the beginning of time. And as we pick up here, okay, what we see is we see that the children of Israel have been struggling with this thing the entire time. And the reason 
quite often, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't mean to add anything that pr- Brother Chris uh, taught this morning, but one of the quote-unquote reasons as to why we struggle with our identity is primarily is because we define ourselves by our environment. We define ourselves by, our, by what we've done. We define ourselves by our accomplishments. We define ourselves by what we've done or what we have not done. Instead of defining ourselves by what the Word of God says about you. And what the Word of God says about you, it says that you're forgiven. What God's Word about you says is that you've been set free. God's Word says that you're loved. God's Word says that you've been bought with the price. God's Word says that he who the Son sets set free is free indeed. It's free indeed. And the thing that the Israelites struggled with early on was that feeling that they were legit. Feeling that they were legit. Anybody know what I mean by feeling legit? Official. Official. If you have any, if you ever, if you've ever tried out for any type of a sports team, there's some things that you begin to check off the list that make you feel as if you're complete, as if you've made it. Okay? You get the uniform, you have that check. You've got your name on the back, check. You have a locker, check. You play in the games, check. You have all these things that make you feel complete as if you've made it. And this is what the children of God struggled with early on in Scripture, okay? One of the things that also that they struggle with is the fact that they did not have a professional army. A professional army. So let me, let me communicate this very quickly here. When we talk about being a professional, a professional is simply somebody that is a proficient at a certain skill set. Brother Joe's the engineer, okay? Now, I can, I, what he has to do is he has the skill set, he has the plans, he has the understanding, he has the resources to be able to put some stuff together that I cannot do. Now, I can tell you this. I, I can do some things. It may be a month before I get it done. I can look up some stuff on YouTube and maybe rig up some things. But I, I don't have the proficiency that he has to be able to do it within a right time frame. The Israelites struggled with not having a professional army because what they had was essentially was an oversized, I'll say they had what you call an oversized militia. And what a militia was, a militia was simply this. It's a civilian army. It's an army in which essentially it's made up of simply civilians, people that this is not their day job. And so during the early stages of the Bible, what we read about is we read about that God's people would show up to battle and they did not have all of the resources. They didn't have all the training. They didn't have, we will say, what it takes to win the battle. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't quite have the, the, all of the nuances of what you would think would make them formidable. What you think that would make them potent. They didn't have the strength to actually defeat the enemy. Okay. And so I want somebody to hear this preacher this morning. There are things, there are battles that you're going to face. That you do not have the strength to fight. There are battles that you're going to face that you don't have the resources to overcome. There's battles that you're going to face that you don't have the intellect to know what to do. There's battles that you're going to face, okay, that you do, do not have what it takes to win. But I'm here to tell you this morning, do not focus on what you don't have. Put your focus on what you do have. And what you have is you have a God that's never lost a battle. You have a God that owns a cattle on a thousand hills. 
You have a God that's already told you that you don't fight for victory, you fight from victory. You have a God that stands over and above it all that says you've already won the battle. And this is why Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. He says this, Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When you and I have gotten to a place that you've exhausted everything that you have, I'm here to tell you, when you've gotten to that place where you say, Look, Jack, I don't have it all. I can't fix this. I can't fight this. I can't figure this out. When you get to that place and you begin to turn it over to him, that's when you are at your strongest point. When you're in the midst of your battles and you're saying, let me just give it over to you because I got nothing. I got nothing. And so in the Old Testament, here's what we have. We have this ragtag group of Israelites, and they were winning these battles in ways that I would say are completely unorthodox. Does everybody understand what I mean by unorthodox? They, 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 were, they, they were winning battles that took different approaches, that took different perspectives, that, that, that you wouldn't think that they would have ever won at all. In fact, you couldn't explain it. You couldn't explain it at all. Because and here's what happens when we tend to rely on our own strength. When we rely on our own strength, we go to our own strengths and, and skill sets. And what it begins to happen at that point in time is you come with the same approach that you've always come with. And so if you've got a lot of wealth, if you've got a lot of money, you know what you're going to do? Every problem you're going to do, you're going to try to throw wealth and money at it. And there's going to be some problems in your life that wealth and money will not fix. But if that's only your resource, if that's the only resource that you have, and you continually try to throw that at that problem, that's not going to fix anything. And that's why God is saying, you have to get to the point where you've exhausted everything that you have, and you begin to turn that over to him and let him begin to do it, because he's got a different strategy. Because if you take a look at the battles of the Israelites in the Old Testament, you will notice that it was always a different approach. There were some times that they had to march around the city, sometimes they had to attack the city. Sometimes the Bible said, if you remember this, okay, scripture says this, and it says this in, um, ah, Bible says that Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and we learned that this morning, okay, that it was, it was in him that had to come out, right? It was in him that had to come out, and he's up at this point in time, and he took Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, up to that Mount of Transfiguration. The Bible says that after that encounter, Peter, you know, Peter said, Peter said, can we stay right here? Peter wanted to stay on the hill. Okay, but they had to go down. And the story immediately after that, the scripture says they came down the mountain. Jesus encounters a man that is possessed by, excuse me, is a man whose son was possessed by a demon. The man had brought his son to Jesus' disciples. The disciples had spent all night trying to cast the demon out of this young boy to no avail. He brings the boy to Jesus and Jesus casts out the demon. The disciples are then scratching their head, trying to figure out, Lord, why could not we cast this demon out? To which Jesus responds, what? These kind cometh not out, but by what? Prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. The approach of prayer that they were using was not going to work. It wasn't going to work at all. Prayer and fasting. And so the battles that you are facing and that you're going to face spiritually are going to require different approaches that you and I have to be submitted to God 
totally to understand that. Let me begin to bend this back a little bit. One of the tactics that the Israelites use, and this is going to tie in with this original scripture, is that after so many unorthodox tactics of winning wars, the Israelites actually became known as great fighters in the hills. And the reason that they were great fighters in the hills is because they could deploy what I would call guerrilla warfare. Does anybody understand what guerrilla warfare is? Guerrilla warfare is a type of warfare that you engage with the enemy, not on their terrain, but you begin engaging the enemy in terrain in which you can throw rocks and you can begin to hide behind a rock. You can hide behind the hills. You can hide behind the brush. But what happened was the, the reputation that the Israelites received from a lot of the pagan nations around them is that they're only good in the hills. They were only good in the hills. If you look at the weaponry with a lot of... Israelite weapons that they used is they were very good with the slingshots. Slingshots were extremely good because they were virtually, they were cheap to make first and foremost, but it, it, it also helped them circ- circumnavigate having any monopolies, which the Philistines did with the iron at the time because they didn't have the resources to combat the enemy. And so this is why in scripture, you'll see this, you'll see this. This is why in scripture, the Bible says that at one time, okay, Saul was going into war with Jonathan. It says that the army of Israel, there was only two people that had swords, the king and his son. Everybody else showed up with sticks. They showed up with rocks. They showed up with everything else. And so the reputation in Scripture had gotten to the point where the Israelites, God's children, were only known as being well-equipped in the hills. And so in, in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 27 and 28, When the Syrian generals, when the Syrians had come to them and said this, they says, their God is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. What that was talking about is that what the enemy wanted to do is he wanted to get them to a place in the valleys, in the plains, because in the valleys, you know what happens in the valleys? You're exposed. In the valleys, there's no rocks to hide behind. In the valleys, there's no brush. In the valleys, there's no cover. In the valleys, you're transparent. In the valleys, I can see all the things about you. I can see your weak spots. In the valleys, you can't hit and run. In the valleys, you're left to me. And so the Syrians said, their God is the God of the hills. He's not. I want you to understand this this morning. The enemy wants to get you into those places in the valleys in your life where he wants to begin to work on you and tell you that God is gone. He's going to work on you when you get in those hard places in your life and he's going to tell you that God is absent. He's going to take your low lows and he's going to say God is But what God is telling somebody this afternoon is that not only is he God of the hills, he's the God of the valleys. The same God that's the Alpha is the same God that's the Omega. 
The same God that started the work in you is the same God that's going to finish. The same God that took you out of prison is the same God that's going to take you into your promise. The same God that's breaking it all down is the same God that's going to put it back together. The same God that made the water is the same God that didn't turn it to wine. The same God that's been with you when you in your highest moments is the same God that's with you in the valleys. One of the very first miracles that occurred in, in Jesus' ministry, the Bible says that, is that when he walked into a wedding, and the scripture tells us that they, they, had, they had ran out of wine. They had ran out of wine. And I want you to understand how embarrassing that is, specifically within this culture. Okay, We have a culture that weddings are over the top, and oftentimes what ends up happening is that within these weddings, my wife and I went to a wedding, but was about Eight years ago, and uh, I, I don't, I don't even want to guess how much was spent. But I was in the wedding, and he, I ended up getting a watch. Everybody in the bridal party got a watch. But weddings in the Middle Eastern times were about more about giving than they were about getting. And and, and the scripture tells us that Jesus shows up to this wedding, and in the middle of this thing, they ran out of wine. They ran out of wine. And and and. and as embarrassing as that is, you have somebody that's run out of a resource. Scripture tells us that Mary told the servants, okay, she came to Jesus and she told the servants, do whatever Jesus is going to tell you to do. And I'm here to tell somebody this morning, if you've gotten to a place where you've run out of all your resources, if you've gotten to a place where you've exhausted yourself, if you've gotten to a place where you say, I don't have anything left, what I'm going to tell you is just like Mary told those servants, I'm going to tell you what, what Jesus said. Do whatever Jesus is telling you to do. If he's telling you to give up a certain lifestyle, give it up. If there's a relationship that you need to give up, give it up. If he's telling you that you need to put your trust in him, put your trust in him. Because the quicker, the quicker we can get to this and let him go to work. You know what, you know what happened after that? The Bible says that the governor of the feast came to the bridegroom. You know what he told him? He said, look, I don't, I've never been to any other party, but this is a party. Okay, normally they roll out the, the, the best wine to start out with. But you save, you save the best wine for last. If you can get a hold of this thing, I can promise you that not only the first half of your life is going to be blessed. It's going to be blessed. The second half is going to be blessed better than the first half. I'm, I hope I'm talking to a church here that's willing, willing to say, I'm, I'm looking for God to bless the latter half better than he did the first half. I know I've made some mistakes in the first half. I know some things have been going on in the first half, but I want the last, the last half of my party to, 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 to the bride, the groom, bridegroom to say, look, I don't know what you got in you. I don't know what you've been drinking, but this wine is better than that first wine. There's a man in scripture by the name of Job. And the Bible says in the book of Job, that there are 42 chapters in Job. 41 of those chapters are dedicated, spent to telling us all about the tragedy that occurred in the first half of his life. But then it says this, it says in Job chapter 42 verse 12, it says, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And when you begin to pair this to the first chapter, scripture says, 
and he had 14,000 sheep. He started with 7,000. He had 6,000 camels in the end. He had 3,000 in the beginning. He had 1,000 yoke of oxen. In the beginning, he had 500. He had 1,000 female donkeys. In the beginning, he had 500. If there's anybody that needed to know right off the bat, okay, that found out first, firsthand that God was just not a God of the first half, but God is a God of the second half of your life. But somehow we think that God has stopped being God in our valleys, in those periods in our life when our anger has never been greater. You know what I'm talking about? When your frustrations are real, when the fear is real, when the issues start hitting home, somehow we forget, we think that God has stopped being God in those periods of time. And what God is saying in those valleys that you're facing, what God is saying is that, you know what, when you get to the hills, you give me praise. But what I feel like God is telling me, telling somebody at this point in time is, look, you give me your praise when you're in your hills. But what I'm asking for is when you give me, when you get in your valleys, give me your pain. When you get in your valleys, give me your fears. When you get in your valleys, give me all the issues of your life. When you get in your valleys, give me the stuff that keeps you up at night. When you get in your valleys, that's all the stuff. You can lay it on me. You can lay it on me. Because I'm God of your hills and I'm God of your valleys. I'm not just God when everything is up here. I'm God when everything is down here. Give it to me. When you're at your lows of lows, give it all to me. But what we do is we disconnect from him during our circumstances. So we let our circumstances dictate our perspective on who God is. I'm going to close here real quickly. I'm going to give you three things. Three things to help you through your valleys. I'm closing. Change your perspective. Change your perspective. The Bible says in Job chapter 42 verse 10, it says, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job, watch this now, when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. That word when, you know what that word when means? That means it's a, it's a cause and effect. It's a cause and effect. What I mean by cause and effect is, is that when Job prayed for his friends, that's when his things shifted for him. When Job prayed. So start praying for folks that are seriously in your valleys that are causing you problems. If you've got somebody in your valley that is your enemy, start praying for them folks. Okay, Luke, Luke 6.28 says, bless them that curse you and pray for them that despitefully use you. If you're in your valley, start praying for those people. Because in Job's situation, things shifted. Things shifted when he began to pray for the people that were against him. Change of perspective. Next. Get a fixated point point of view of God. Get a fixated point of view of God. Bible says this in Job chapter 42 verse 7. It says, and it was so that after the Lord spoke these words unto Job, the Lord said to Elphaz the Temanite, 
my wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. For you have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. Here's the primary reason why Job found favor in God's sight. And many of you know the story. The primary reason why Job found favor in God's sight is this, as opposed to his friends, is despite all the tragedy that was going on, everybody spoke the truth. His friends spoke the truth. Job spoke the truth. But what Job did is Job fixated his eyes on a healthy viewpoint of God that did not waver during his circumstances. That's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. Can you fixate a healthy viewpoint of God that is resilient despite what you are going through at this point and time? That is never changing. We just saying he's good, right? Is he going to be good on Monday? Is he going to be good on Tuesday? Is he going to be good when you go back to work? Is he going to be good when you go to the doctor's office and you have a diagnosis that you don't like? Is he going to be good when that person that you've been having issues with comes into your life or you get the phone call? Are you still going to say he's good when those situations occur? Job had a fixated point of who God was and it, it, it transcended his circumstances. Last point. You're called to be different. You're called to be different. Every child of God is called to handle their valley different. You're called to handle your valley differently than the world. You're not called to handle your, your valleys the same way that everybody else does. We don't go to the bottle after a hard day, do we? We don't go to the cigarette after circumstances. That doesn't mean you don't cry. That doesn't mean you don't get angry. That doesn't mean you don't feel pain. But the default that we have is in Christ Jesus. He's the king of your hills. And he's the king of your valleys. Don't let the enemy convince you that he is only there when you're in your hills. Let's stand. We're going to close in prayer this morning. And I just, I just want to pray for you. Um, I just want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. Um, I feel it. I just get the impression that there are a lot of heavy circumstances in this place this morning. And we're, we're going to pray that um, that despite those whatever issues that you have going on, that you begin to draw closer to him in the midst of this. Because it is is you know, I heard Pastor Brownie preach one time. Sometimes we forget that in the valley is where David found the stones. Wasn't it? The valley is where David found the tools and the resources to defeat the giants in his life. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done so far, Lord. We thank you for bringing us this far, Lord. And it may not be quite what we expected, but we just want to acknowledge the fact that you're, you're not just God of, of the starts, but you're God of the finish. You're not just God of the first half, Lord, but you're God of the second half. It was David, Lord, in your word that said, I'd fainted. I'd fainted. I'd given up. I'd lost hope. Unless, unless, unless I believed. Unless I actually believed 
I fixated in my heart that you were going to come through, not in eternity, Lord, but in the land of the living. God, what kept David going through his trials and his circumstances, what is our mind was fixated on you. And our prayer right now, God, is in the midst of our valleys, in the midst of our circumstances, our frustrations, our situations, our angers, our fears, that you would be even more closer now than you ever have been. God, I pray that you would show yourself to be real in the midst of everything that we are going through. In your precious and mighty name, in Jesus' name.